From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. One of the reasons I love my job is the constant surprises. I wake up every morning, walk in the big glass doors of the Chronicle at 901 Mission Street, and have no idea what's going to happen. But nothing prepared me for what I learned during the very first The Big Event podcast recording last year when I asked reporter Kevin Fagan his favorite San Francisco movie. Kevin Fagan, probably the grisliest writer I've ever met. He's witnessed multiple executions and has the unofficial serial killer beat at the Chronicle. Kevin Fagan, who once described another person's abscess in detail in the first paragraph of a story, loves The Princess Diaries. Here's the trailer from the 2001 G-rated film starring Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway in her breakthrough role about an awkward high schooler in San Francisco who learns she's the heir to the throne for a European country called Genovia. Just in case, I'm not enough of a freak already. What's that, a tiara? I can teach you to walk, talk, sit, stand like a princess. Let the work begin. We don't schlump like this. It's a question of... So with Kevin's endorsement, we have no choice but to induct the Princess Diaries into the SF Cinema Greatest of All Time. I invited the big event regular style writer and Princess Diaries superfan Tony Bravo to join us, and then great things happen as we paid tribute to the Gary Marshall film set in San Francisco. Two of my favorite people, and this is one of my all-time favorite episodes, were your concierge for culture in the Bay Area, I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to The Big Event. Welcome back, Tony Bravo. Thank you for having me, Peter. And welcome back, Kevin Fagan. And thank you for having me. Negligence here. Kevin, you have not been on The Big Event since the very first episode where we talked about oh wow yeah the zodiac that was the first murders and you cover you just did a big piece on uh jonestown right um you do a lot of the gloom and doom for the chronicle i do and we're here today to talk about oh one of my favorite movies the princess diaries princess diaries this is so this was a revelation to me kevin is has a beat that defies description sometimes and some of the the dark places he has he has to go to know that he has a fondness for the Princess Diaries helps me see the movie in a whole new light. Well, the, well, the thing is, I I write about things that get blown up and smashed and hacked up and eaten, and I I, I go really dark. I'm, I write songs that are really dark too. But when I I love a good light happy feature, and and I'll tell you, this movie came out when my daughter was a young kid, and I I love movies that that empower girls, and uh, and this one is near the top of my list, if not at the very top. Well, I, I'm going to go straight to where you saw Princess Diaries for the first time, and I think you both have a pretty good story. Tony. So this movie came out my senior year of high school, and it's, it's a movie about a San Francisco high schooler, essentially, and it had a lot of special relevance because she was scooting around on the streets that I was and not that I was scooting mind you I I, even as a teenager knew that that was ridiculous (laughs) I remember seeing this movie um kind of gently skipping afternoon classes and seeing it at the kabuki theater in the middle of the day um 
and skipping class. Oh, hmm. it was art yeah. school. It was it was necessary research for um, my eventual <laughs> Julie Andrews doctorate that I was I, I was I would have pursued if I hadn't become a reporter. I remember at that moment we hadn't really seen a Julie Andrews movie in a long time. I grew up a big fan. Oh yeah. Um, thinking she was fantastic, and just the introduction to Anne Hathaway in in this movie was pretty spectacular in that this was a teenage actress only a couple of years older than me that was really holding her own with Maria Von Trapp, Mary Poppins, Victor Victoria. I believe that my daughter and I saw this at a downtown theater with my wife. Uh, she was about eight and I just thought it was, it, it blew me away. And, and at, at that age, there's, there's a lot of crap that goes out there to, to, uh, you know, as bad role models for kids for girls especially which is you know I'm, I'm a dad and this movie had a had a strong female character in fact all the all the characters in it seem seem to have been strong female characters the ones in charge and last night I got my daughter and her friends all on a conference call uh-huh. so we could uh, uh, revisit this and and it really affected most of her friends in a big big way yeah. uh, they they loved this thing it it felt like it was um, uh, they felt like it was uh, a, a touchstone for them because it was an awkward girl, and it was and and like a lot of movies where you have awkward girls who are so obviously knockouts and very smart and they're just kind of pretending to be awkward. She really owned it, yeah. And then she owned her actualization of herself. And uh, uh, I think one one thing my daughter said was uh, San Francisco is its own character here too, and she loved that. Yeah, that you really get a sense of what San Francisco was in 2001. There's a lot of driving around in side streets. It's not just a centerpiece scene on Telegraph Hill and the centerpiece scene in, you know, Baker Beach. There's driving around. There's streets. You can recognize your neighborhood possibly if you live here. Yeah, yeah, uh, and 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 that's wonderful. The one thing that struck me, I, I specialize in homelessness among the gloom and doom other stuff uh there weren't any homeless people in here yeah but i was okay with that because it's a nice happy sparkly clean movie it's with julie andrews for god's sake national treasure yeah sure my father was the prince of genovia Uh uh-huh you're joking why would i joke about something like that no no because if he's really a prince then i exactly you're not just amelia philopolis you are amelia mignonette philopolis rinaldi Princess of Genovia. Me? A, a princess? Shut up! I beg your pardon? Shut up. Your Majesty, in America, it doesn't always mean be quiet. Here it could mean, wow, gee whiz, golly wally. Oh, I, I understand. Thank you. So I don't have a good story. I saw it when you mentioned it on the podcast. I'm like, I got to check out this Princess Diaries. So I did. Um, That was a year and a half ago. And then I watched it again last night. I liked it even better the second time. I enjoyed it the first time. The second time, the things that maybe bugged me about it didn't bug me anymore. And I was able to kind of get into what you're talking about, you know, the real positivity of it. It's just a really charming film, too. It's a well-made, sparkling little piece of exactly what that moment in San Francisco was like in some ways. Certainly it was the Disney Gary Marshall uh, cleaner version of our city, but there were so many cultural things like the feng shui jokes and the... Oh, um, I loved it. And um, a lot of just the kind of things that felt very much part of our culture. Like Gary Marshall really absorbed what was going on in the city when he was preparing the movie. Yeah, yeah. so 2001... 
this is almost 10 years after Pretty Woman, and he's made a couple other movies like that. I think he wanted to make something that was a little bit more wholesome. Uh, Rated G, produced by Whitney Houston, one of the little nuggets that I found in the Chronicle. Uh, Ruth Stein reported that uh, she interviewed him and that Julie Andrews and Whitney Houston sung him Happy Birthday uh, wow. on the set while it was recording. Could you imagine that? Oh, Harmony? Man. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm taking a gay pause here for a moment. I'm processing <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I-, I think he was looking to have a good time. He had fun in San Francisco. There's a lot of local cast and crew. And he has family here, too. I, I know um, his either his granddaughters or his nieces are in the film in a couple of scenes. Yeah, I saw a guy I play basketball with, Ira Glick, who I go to his salons, and he's in his 80s now, still playing basketball. And um, he just shows up in in the Genovia consulate scene or whatever at the end, the yeah. ball. That thing. is Whoa. such a catch-all of San Francisco people. I mean, I know we're going to get to one very special um, cameo appearance later. Yes. Oh, but yes. Definitely. I also have noticed oh, yes. a couple of people I know from the, um, the gala circuit, shall we say. Uh, I, <laughs> I I love the gaggle, especially that trolley scene. That's one of my favorite ones. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines too. Goodbye, trolley, trolley people. people. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> She's so great. Um, just a couple more things. It did not get good reviews. Um, it was uh, 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people were really critical of the film. And they're wrong. And they they're are. wrong. Yeah. But The Chronicle, Mick LaSalle, I love this. I was actually looking it up, dreading, like, a sleeping guy and having to throw Mick LaSalle under the bus. No, gentlemen. Mick LaSalle loved uh, Princess Diaries. That's mm. four dudes at the Chronicle who are that's, like... I remember cool. reading this review, by the way. Um, as, wow. as a high school student, I, of course, never missed the Chronicle. And um, Mick is among the writers that I followed really carefully. And I remember so distinctly because he had written his book on pre-code cinema uh-huh. that I thought the way he right. wrote about women characters in films um, was among the the best re- reviews, especially by a male uh, critic that I'd ever read of, of female characters. I thought that his review of Princess Diaries really reflected that. Just a shout out to my colleague. Well, let's, let's pause and I, I want to add to that because I started reading him um, in high school as well. He hates, I don't know that he hates it, he should because he's only a few years older than me, but they hired him when he was like 20 or 21. He was very young and I had been reading Chronicle Critics and never felt like they sp- spoke to me or for me. Um, they were good critics, but they very much wanted to see Amadeus again, not the Karate Kid part two. Right. And then Mick LaSalle came in and was funny and they sent him to all the horror movies and the teen comedies and the things that I like to see and he wrote about them like a peer. Absolutely, he and gave I, them the same weight I thought as he would reviewing a, a big important Amadeus. And, and he yeah. still writes he still like does. that. I mean, he, he's a lot like Ebert in that he hasn't lost his love for movies. I was reading uh, his Creed two review and it, I happen to know his very first review for the Chronicle was Rocky four. And I've read them both and his wow. Creed two review is more uh, maturely written, but he hasn't lost his love for movies and his ability to kind of speak to the. It's so a, yeah. tribute to Mick LaSalle. I, oh, a lot of absolutely. people criticize absolutely. him because he disagrees with their opinion, but he's a great writer. Hey, if you're not getting criticized in this business, you're oh, not yeah. doing your job, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, as you know. And he was he was totally right on this this one. Yeah, this, I think I think some the the bad reviews mm-hmm. came because there's an American character that likes snark. This yeah. movie didn't have snark. Yeah. And and I loved it for that. 
this movie really has a lot of heart. And, you know, I think it's totally appropriate that Mick gave this a, the review that he did because it's a very San Francisco movie. There's so many in-jokes and a lot of the things about San Francisco in 2001 that are captured here have become just kind of part of our culture now in 2018. Hey, well, the me, Chronicle's even in it. Yeah, a the couple of, yeah. several times. Yeah. They didn't get the font right, though. I no. just wrote about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, how the oh, Chronicle yeah. appears in that. Oh, old. yeah, that's terrible font. And, and they, they yeah. actually got the font right. And then the um, they, it always I notice when they don't get the font of the Chronicle, uh-huh. those headlines right. Yeah. Let me just read. I'm going to read Mikkelsal's review. Gary Marshall's The Princess Diaries is a little like his movie Beaches in that it's about a friendship between two girls. And it's more than a little like his big hit Pretty Woman. It's about a young lady rough around the edges who takes lessons in decorum to be transformed into a princess. It's like both those Marshall films, and yet it's better, a lot better. Indeed, The Princess Diaries may be Marshall's best movie. Mm. Here, the sweetness of spirit that has governed his work, that made Beaches too corny and Pretty Woman, a prostitution romp, clueless and distasteful, no longer seems incongruous. Instead, we get something nice, a sweet movie from a sweet director. Okay, uh, Mick was like this film was woke before we had the word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we all like this movie a lot. Um, we've already kind of been touching on it, but I just wanted to go like person to person and just talk a little bit about what worked with Princess Diaries. And um, I'll start with you, Kevin. Well, like one of my daughter's pals said, uh, uh, it's impressive that the characters are likable and authentic and so palpably awkward. For the one, for especially Mia, uh, I thought that that represented a, a a time in a girl's life and a kid's life that was was uh, relatable. And you know, and it's a fantasy, it's a fairy tale, but you can take some real things really from it. Uh, you're going to be an assertive woman uh, at 15, deciding what your future is, uh, and Julie Andrews is uh, unconditionally loving her family which I thought was wonderful. These were all things I wanted represented for my daughter in a movie uh, that has a happy ending. I love happy endings. Yeah. We get enough bad endings in life. <laughs> and this this was just delightful all the way through for me. Yeah, excellent. Tony. Don't we all fantasize, especially at that awkward teenage age, that Julie Andrews is going to show up, say, we're related, and by the way, you're, you have your own country. <laughs> it is it is the it is the best kind of fairy tale also in the fact that um neither Mia nor um Queen Clarice are waiting around for Prince Charming are um waiting for anyone to help them define their power i mean it's really about a um a young woman coming into her own but also how she's guided I love that. By, by this mentor, um, who is her, uh, who is her grandmother, and also the, the character of the mother in this is incredibly strong too. The artist that says there was no way I was going to spend my life walking three steps behind somebody. I had to, I had to blaze my own path. I wanted to paint. <laughs> the other thing about this that works for me so well is the, uh, the thing that Kevin's daughter said. San Francisco really is a character in this film. You not only get these great iconic vistas, but you get this feeling of some of the like progressive culture of that era. You get some of mm. the diversity. I mean, it's it's Disney diversity, mind you. All everything being very scrubbed and airbrushed to some degree, but it it feels a little bit more authentic than other films I've seen about the city from that same era. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, and we're going to talk more about San Francisco and the locations later, and Willie Brown, but. Um, 
I liked all the central performances so much. Um, and Julie Andrews especially, I think she probably had an awareness of how people saw her and pushed a little bit more toward um, letting people know that she's cool. And I love the corn dog scene. It's delicious, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the the scene where she runs in, where they they uh, the Mustang runs into the cable car, and I mean, fantastic scene that she just commands. And the point where she's talking to the cable car operator, it's a fake cable car. It's one of the gray line ones. Yes, yeah. as was noted last night. Yeah, yes, and yes. and she's talking to the police officer. She's conning them. I mean, it's a little bit of an Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills cop thing, but she's not mean to them at all. I mean, I dub thee Artie Washington, San Francisco man. Arthur Washington, and I dub thee Bruce McIntosh of San Leandro. Bruce McIntosh, masters of the Order of the Rose. And all of you bear witness to this auspicious moment in history. Mia, I, I know you don't want to go all the way downtown, but... Uh, that really won't be necessary. No one got hurt, did they? No, we're in short. Okay. Well, we're shivering dead, you know, so... Noble, Arthur, how very kind. Do you need a lift home? Oh, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Come along, Mia. Goodbye, trolley people. Please take care. I dub the Bruce McIntosh of San Leandro, Master of the Order of the Rose. <laughs> She's not making fun of them. She's you know, understanding them and having a moment and with them. And she winks at her Disney reputation. There's a moment in that scene where she goes, who has a Saba? <laughs> and a woman on the fake cable car says, well, I have an umbrella. And she goes, Ey. Yeah, right. No Mary Poppins <laughs> No for Mary me. Poppins moment for her. <laughs> so I thought she was great. Uh, Hector Elizondo, I, I oh. apologize if I'm pronouncing that, that incorrectly. That is such a charming performance. Their chemistry. I mean, there there is chemistry between two older characters in yeah. a film that is um, very, that, that's not that common as we know, even now. Yeah, and, yeah. And Anne Hathaway has become uh, a great actress, and, and a, but a different kind of actress. If you look at Ocean's 8, she plays to the fact that people think she's kind of a bitch and that she's hard to deal with, and she's developed that reputation. Um, looking back at this movie, uh, it, it reminds me, it, it like sheds all of that away. Um, she comes in just so authentically uncomfortable and clumsy. And what I like is that they don't try to fix that. She's still that at the end, but she also is a princess. Um, she's yeah. more comfortable with herself. And the thing that makes her a princess isn't just the makeover, which is lovely and fun, sure. but also that she's developed confidence and she's gone from you know throwing up when she has to have public speaking to making just a really eloquent speech. And I thought that transition with her was just great. Oh, I thought it was great acting too. She had presence from the minute she hits the screen. And she holds her own with Julie Andrews. What I was really impressed by with this is um, not only did she command every scene that she was in and did it did that character have so much nuance it's so hard i feel like to bring something new and different to a lot of these teenage stories what um what, it it felt like she was playing a part of herself it's it's that other side of the sabrina audrey hepburn uh, my fair lady which julie andrews originated on stage of course mm, yeah. makeover story that we don't see um that that interior life that is not necessarily made better by two eyebrows and and straighter hair i think right. that a lot of the anne hathaway hate by the way that's gone on over the years the hatha haters which is a mm -hmm. term that came up around the time of 
Les Mis is because Anne is relatively outspoken about a lot of issues that affect young women. Um, I think that this is a movie, too, that given all her advocacy work on behalf of women's issues and LGBT issues and other human rights issues is not a movie that she needs to be embarrassed by. I think it holds up very well with her ethos and the values that she espouses today. Whereas there are a lot of teenage films that big, prominent Academy Award-winning film stars look back on and are probably not thrilled with. Yeah, yeah. I, in terms I, of their oeuvre. Yeah, and I, th- I think the whole half the hater thing is ridiculous. Uh, did she? I think it's misogynistic. It is. Yeah. How many it men is. have that quality, and it's looked at as a positive thing? Absolutely. Uh, she's yeah. assertive. She's it, like you said. She's an advocate. Yeah. What the heck? Like Streisand says, you know, when a man does it, he's assertive. When a woman does it, she's bossy. Right. Yeah. I mean, Harrison Ford. That's his entire reputation, and people. I, I never he- hear people talking about it like they talk about her. You know what was great about this, too, is that she becomes a princess. She is no more popular the next day. They are no nicer to her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that I thought That's was a little... That's teenagers. Well, yeah, we're going to get, yeah. get to some criticisms, too. But sure. in, any more things that you guys liked? And, and we'll get to the San Francisco-ness of it, too. Okay, Julie yeah. Andrews, can we just come back to this? Oh, I mean, yeah. this is such a magnificent performance and she winks at I think her own baggage in this and Julie Andrews has a lot of films where she's had to play child care yeah. think about this Mary Poppins uh, yeah. the Eloise movies which came out around that time Sound, Sound of, of Music, music of yeah. course in this one she's I think she's very much aware of this sugary image that people have in in mind for her and she has perhaps the most edge in the movie in some ways she's a little um She's a little curt at times. She's a little too cool for school. I love that Julie Andrews is this really rare combination where she's this big family-friendly Disney icon, and yet she's also kind of a huge gay icon at the same time. I would even say that she's a young gay child's first gay icon because (laughs) you don't necessarily (laughs) grow up with like Diana Ross and Mahogany or Liza and Cabaret, but you do get... Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins is a pretty young kid um, unless your parents are horribly abusive. Maybe Judy Garland too falls into that because of The Wizard of Oz. But I I think that she straddles the line between all of these things so perfectly in this film. She really does. And there are little nods too. Like when Joe pulls out the pumps in the the limo, makes a joke about, you know, the pumps. It's it's just so gentle and, and... and almost loving. And not condescending, by the way. There's yeah. that fabulous moment where uh, Lily, uh, Mia says, um, are you going to tell me now that I have a sister that's a duchess? And Julie Andrews says, you have a cousin who's a contessa, fondly known <laughs> as Pookie Bartholomew. Right. <laughs> so I think, actually, that this is really important. So now they're talking about how LeFou in the live-action Beauty and the Beast was Disney's first gay character. I want to say that the unseen Contessa Pookie, (laughs) a.k.a. Bartholomew, (laughs) is Disney's first genderqueer or non-binary character. Nice. I would like to actually see um, the third uh, film in the Princess Diaries series be all about Pookie. Not a bad idea. It's supposedly, you know, kicking around in the works somewhere. Yeah, and Ezra oh. Miller could play Pookie. He, yeah. They have come out as being uh, on the you know, non-binary. So I I say we get this rolling. Maybe Penny Marshall can direct it now that Gary's no longer with us. Good Penny idea. Marshall's a good director. Oh, she's terrific. Yeah. League of their own. Let's yeah. talk about yeah. woke movies before yeah. we had the word. What about what about criticisms? Um, I You may not have many. I As a film critic, I'm watching this, and I think – 
the story's maybe five to ten minutes too long and has a third act problem, which it's a G-rated movie, so I'm sure they didn't want to get too much conflict going, but it doesn't really have a villain. There's this sort of other couple who may Mm -hmm. become the heirs to the Genovia throne, but they're not really developed. Um, A lot of the conflict is driven through either crazily, weirdly, over-the-top bad media, the -the over-the-top, crazy bad cheerleading squad, or misunderstandings. Um, I mean, it's just the the thing that's driving the conflict in this, um, to me, isn't super strong. We do not come across very well in this, by the way, local media. (laughs) I think think we might be the villain. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was I. I actually kind of hate it when they over over sensationalize the the evil media. I mean, it's mainly local TV that comes across badly. Mm-hmm. But yes, we do have a couple of Chronicle um, covers in there that are I I'd say less than flattering. I freeze framed it last night to try and see if there was a fake byline on any of those. Did you find cover one? stories? No, no, no yeah. I couldn't get close enough. Oh, well, I, I I'll th- tell you, I didn't like the. I thought the boyfriend was flat, and my and Molly thought so too. Yeah. Uh, the the boyfriend was was a, not a well drawn character. Yeah. I didn't believe that she would be attracted to him. Uh, uh, it didn't work for me. I, I would say, um, to the other thing is, I go. Oh, I want Lana to get an even bigger comeuppance. The cheerleader villain oh, she played was by so Mandy Moore. So bad. Okay, so because I believe if we were to have a real life Princess Diaries situation with an incognito royal here, I believe that that would probably be my beat as the style reporter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that this would probably naturally fall into society and lifestyle coverage. So my kind of fantasy is is that instead of, um, you know, stalking the princess the way that the local TV reporters seem to do in this movie, yeah. I would just befriend her. I mean, she's an awkward teenage girl that, you know, just got a makeover. Clearly, this is somebody that I'm going to be able to relate well to. Um, so my plan would be that I would befriend her partially by helping her get revenge on all of those teen bullies because I know every one of those mean girl tricks. For me, they'd probably assign me to, to do some story about the horrible death that killed uh, you know her father in some awful wreck. That's right. Break that's, that down. I also yeah, kind of assume, by the way, that because Genovia's Monaco, that like right. it was like a Princess Grace accident. I like, would think so. Swerving around in a Land Rover. Get to the bottom hills. of that. Yeah. I wasn't totally clear either on what happened to the father and why, why the father and the grandmother aren't more of a part of her life. Yeah, that that on. that was a little. Uh, yeah, that, that it, I mean, the mother fully. wanted her freedom. She wasn't going to walk behind some man two steps the rest of her life. Yeah, but at least have I, them involved come, in the kid. Like, yeah, have come by and take her to Musée Mécanique sure. you know, every year. Oh, and so casual about the Fabergé merry-go-round that right. was sent to her. The Probably music worth box. A half a million bucks or something. I just That's looking at how how the Genovia works I don't yeah. see it real realistic that he had to give her up for this country I mean I this, this country seems to be completely revolving around pears and and right. and, and, and balls I mean it um, yeah so. the and, and, ball economy though is pretty extraordinary you have florists that are employed by <laughs> the ball economy <laughs> caterers Lots jewelers couturiers yeah. I mean that could sustain a nation quite yeah. frankly oh, but, but I, that's that's one thing that did actually that I wanted more of is it's more of a sense of who the Genovian people were here she's deciding to be a prisoner a princess she has no idea who these people are I'll tell you that it didn't bug me as much the second time I watched it and I remember the first time I was so angry like the KPMH reporter and thank you Gary Marshall you know rest in peace 
and thank you producers for not using a real station yes. as the yes. helicoptering evil uh, news station that's taking photos of her while she's changing. So tacky. Yeah. But they invite KPMH to the ball after they do all that. Right. I could, I <laughs> There's one reporter there at the ball that I think is the me stand-in. That's like the teen beat <laughs> reporter. That's report. She's, oh. her hair is wet and she's <laughs> rocking a hoodie. None of it bugged me as much though. Now the second time, it's a G-rated movie. I oh, think you yeah. get a little bit of a pass. Um, oh, and- one thing bugged me: geography what? with cars. It's the thing yes. that always bugs me in San Francisco films. Is that one second they're in Pacific Heights, the next they're in the Excelsior. Yes, oh, and, yeah. and, and they're heading toward... Okay, so we'll go to San Francisco now. They're heading yeah. toward... Yeah. Um, they get off on what, Doyle Drive, and they're heading toward Lombard Street, and suddenly they're at the Cliff House. What? Right. Yeah, yeah and, and my daughter was pointing out, what are they doing on the Golden Gate Bridge? They were supposed to be leaving and going to this this uh, to go to the Cliff House. You don't start out Marin when you're already in San Francisco. It, it yeah. didn't really track. It's the full house problem. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. So let's talk about San Francisco. I give the acting and the story beats, the writing, the individual sequences, you know, I give it an A and A minus. I give the overall story structure a C plus. Use of San Francisco, I think this is a supremely underrated film. Um, and we talked oh, a little yeah. bit about it, but uh, they really use San Francisco well, not just with locations, but with little nods, like her having trouble getting that Mustang up and down. Love uh, that. all the streets. I love, love that, that too. Yeah. I I drove our car into the city, and I was always stressed out. You know, having any kind of stick shift in the city as a kid. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah I had a Volkswagen Bug that I, you know, did the same thing, rolling downhill it, it, when I was a teenager. It was terrible. The firehouse. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure I bought that thing in Soma. I, I couldn't place it. It's and the Excelsior, plus, I think. Yeah. It, it's a real location. Really? Is it really? Because yeah. I looked at that thing and I was wondering how this struggling artist could afford what was probably a million well, dollar clearly, firehouse. clearly there was some type of a situation in that divorce where yeah. Prince Philippe said, okay, well, I will buy you this firehouse and we will pay for Mia's schooling. I mean, the, the man owned a country, for God's sake. Right. I think he can give her a firehouse. <laughs> yeah, that was... It was yeah. Also, like, look at how bohemian and, like, impoverished they are in that enormous firehouse. The woman has her... Princess Mia has a tower. Oh, yeah, and, and the place was beautiful inside. It was... Yeah. They were not struggling. And also a very interesting depiction of a teenage bedroom. There was an Eleanor Roosevelt poster that I caught that's uh-huh. above her bed for yeah. the first time watching it last night. Yeah, me too. And then the beautiful views too from the hills. I loved the hills. I loved how they incorporated that in. I thought they did that really artfully. I love too that the extras in this movie looked like San Francisco. We did not have what I refer to as the Amelie problem uh-huh. where the movie is set in Paris and it's almost exclusively white people for most of it. We saw a lot of Asian American people as background characters, people walking around. We saw people of color. Um, we saw some people that I thought read as LGBT in some of the scenes mm-hmm. wandering around. That that felt nice. Yeah, yeah. Even things like I, I noticed the garbage can for the the writer neighbor yeah. was uh, uh, was tie dye kind of colors. And I thought eh, that works. That's yeah. nice. The Baker Beach beach party looked cold. It I did. wanted to give them all sweatshirts. It, it did, it was which not, was right. Yeah, it was not like <laughs> the Malibu Beach beach party. It looked like a San Francisco, like. You're getting cold watching it. Beach yeah. party, yeah. Uh, Musée Mécanique. I well, mean, what a great yeah. place! Oh, yeah, and the old location. You know, uh huh. Right, and I, that was wonderful. That was just wonderful. And, and the way Julie Andrews 
portrayed her her wonder. You, you didn't think uh, it's just a rich person, you know, should know better. It, it was charming. Yeah, it, it worked really well. Yeah. No, I and I can't think of how many movies would have had them riding on a cable car, or going to Alcatraz, or some other recognizable thing that I think a lot of people put in their movies for an international audience to have them have a connection, walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, yeah, playing a bunch of old, playing a bunch of old mechanical arcade games from the Sutro Baths, Playland at the Beach era. I mean, that's yeah. just such a nice little San Francisco. Yeah, it's beautiful. Nod. Yeah, that drive across the Golden Gate Bridge again—that was the one. That was that struck me as almost gratuitous. I know? guess though, if you're a teenager getting to drive around really for the first time with your grandmother, who happens to be the Queen of Genovia. You might want to take her. I will give them a little bit of a pass for that one. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they were coming back from the headlands. We, yeah. we don't know. We weren't there. It could there. be. So then there's Willie Brown. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. And there's Countess Puck of Austria as the glamorous continue to arrive at the Genovian Independence Ball. Despite the threat of rain, the big turnout includes the mayor of San Francisco and the Genovian pear juggler. The future of Genovia is in the hands of young Mia Thermopolis. Her decision tonight will affect the queen, the court, and all the people of this small but proud country. Do you think it's going to rain on us? It never comes down on Willie Brown. <laughs> Thank you. Umbrella's up. And that's enough pear juggling. The rain never comes down on Willie Brown. Love it. That's just like, for me, peak Willie Brown. Isn't um, it? Just... Him getting in a movie, getting to say one line that like just sums up his political career, and <laughs> and then why? I don't even know. Like, how did this come to be? Why not? Sure, <laughs> He's, it's funny. He he really owns that moment there too. I I I'll tell you, I I, I He's I, got I play, charisma on camera. He really does. He's. I I looked him up and I realized, God, I saw him in Georgia the Jungle too. Uh, uh, another kid movie that came out with when, Wow with Brendan Fraser. Uh huh. Uh, which terrifically fun movie, but they, Willie, I, I I play in a band and, and Willie comes to the to the to the gigs occasionally. So early on when he came, I said, "Mr. Mayor, you got to do the line for me." He says, "What line?" He says, "The Princess Diaries line." He did the line for me. It was one of the top moments of my life for my all life the years as a dad that I've that I have gone to events with Willie Brown and, and reported on him and had him as a colleague here at the Chronicle. Yeah. I have never once asked him about the movie. I think I'm a little shy about it because you I don't, shy Come i don't on. i know me it, i i don't want him to demystify it for me perhaps i i want to preserve the image exactly as it is in amber oh it, it's funny when he does the line it's just precious well he's he's been in i'm, I'm counting nine movies um playing himself in most of them but godfather part three i'm sorry nine movies and television series nash bridges of course yeah and, uh, george of, course. of the jungle um this this is my favorite one it's oh. my favorite Willie Brown appearance. And he's only in it for just a, yeah. what, a minute yeah. at most? But we, it is a pivotal minute. <laughs> it yes. is. Yeah. Even my boyfriend, who is you know, newer to San Francisco in the last three years, um, immediately went, oh my God, that Willie Brown is in this movie. I didn't, did you know Willie Brown was in this movie? Yes, I knew Willie Brown was in this movie. It was a big moment for us. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't look much, that much different today either. The guy's yeah. ageless. I love that ball scene, by the way, because given what I do now at the paper, it is so easy for me to picture all the people that I think would have actually been there if they'd really done a full San Francisco social cast. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. No, they're they're just I, th I think we would see all the favorites from the fine arts museums, from the opera guild, from uh, the board of the ballet, from the symphony. 
I I would like to redo this the one thing that maybe we could do like a little bit of a Star Wars remastering on where we can superimpose like Denise Hale <laughs> People. and Dee Dee Wilsey in there um, just to make it a little bit more San Francisco authentic. I like it. I like it. I, I want to read all the fan fiction that you want to write about this. There's this. <laughs> so much fan fiction. I mean, there's the fan fiction where I help Mia uh, bully Lana. There's all of the San Francisco <laughs> social people that's there. There's the Pookie spinoff. I mean, come at me, Disney. I've got ideas. <laughs> this is a lucrative franchise. We could take this in the Star Wars direction. Princess Diaries 3. I wanted to kind of end with how it's aged and... I've found that 90s movies don't age well. Uh, even Sister Act, a movie that Tony and I uh, paid tribute to, yeah. we were talking about how it was fun to see it, but it some of the scenes outdoors didn't necessarily age really well. I think this movie ages very well. Oh, I do too. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely yeah. today. It's a, and, and a lot of those 90s and, and 80s kids movies too, you don't believe the kids. Not really. This one, I believe the kids. No, they really, I can really they see sound them. like teenagers. Yeah. yeah. I believe that, that, that they are who they are, and, and I like where they go, and I like who they represent. And, you know, some of the, the bratty kids in the other movies, a little too much. Yeah. I think, too, this is a movie where – I really, if they decided to revisit it, it's now, um, it's not quite 20 years yet, but we're coming up on that in a couple of years. Yeah. I would really like to know how things are going in Genovia for right. now Queen Mia, since she was, uh, since she had a coronation in the sequel. I would like to know if she ended up with Chris Pine, who was the love interest, of course, in The Princess Diaries 2, seemed a royal like a engagement. Guy. Yeah, uh, seemed the, like a great guy. Yeah, it was the first time we really got to see Chris Pine, also a special moment. Uh, um, yeah. I I would like to know what's going on with Lily. I want to know if the mom's still painting with those water balloons. Yeah, what what Lily did. She would be an interesting uh, element of that. I think that Lily is like Amal Clooney right now. I think that Lily is off working in the UN. I think that... Mia is trying to redefine what hereditary privilege is and how Genovia plays on the world stage. I think, and I think that Queen Clarice is is probably this incredible queen mother type that does all kinds of interesting advocacy work on behalf of etiquette internationally. I think you totally nailed it. I'm just worried there'd be bad news. Like we'd find out that the firehouse got eminent domained and that the Warriors Stadium was built on top of <laughs> oh, it. Oh no. Or- uh, uh, Mia's kid gets kidnapped. It becomes a big drama. Yeah. Uh. Kevin and Zodiac, you mentioned this is one of your favorite San Francisco films. Oh, yeah. Generally, when you see lists, you don't see Princess Diaries very often. Tony, what about you? What do, how do you feel about, about this in terms of where it ranks or fits with other San Francisco films? I'm going to say that this is top five for me. I may be, and this is probably why I'm not a film critic, but I'm probably the only person that would put it in a top five with Vertigo. Wow. Because mm. my taste is that advanced, by the yeah. way. That's <laughs> everybody else's fault. It's not because of anything weird with me. Yeah. Vertigo's Vertigo's wonderful. I love the I love that representation of that San Francisco. It's pretty great. And this feels like it did as good a job in 2001 as Vertigo did in 1958. Yeah. And Dirty Harry takes on, I got to say, I like Dirty Harry too for the 70s. Yeah. Really. Well, I, I, I'm not going to put it in my top five or probably even 10, but it's probably number one or two on my most underrated. And and I, again, watched it a second time this week and I liked it even more and kind of started getting mad at the things that I didn't like about it and I'm ready to defend it fiercely. Yeah. So Princess Diaries. I'm with you. 
Yeah. Closing thoughts, oh. Tony. Come back to me. Closing oh. thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that every dad should have his daughter see. I think it's got it's it's layered. It's got wonderful depth, and it's uh, represents well for uh, actualizing young girls into thinking for themselves and pushing for themselves and being okay being awkward, which a lot of kids are. Most kids are. It's somewhere in their souls, all kids are. Uh, and, and going forward with that and, and blossoming. It's a fairy tale. But fairy tales are great. It's happy. Be happy. It's a great movie. I like it. Tony. Okay, so first of all, I feel bad that I've neglected to say until this point that I also believe the movie is somewhat of a gay parable since Mia has to come out as a princess and eventually oh. own her power and her identity. But I think it's time for me to say what's really been on my mind. What's that? Peter? Yes. Kevin? Yes. This morning when I woke up, I was Mia Thermopolis. <laughs> but now I choose to be forevermore... Amelia Mionette Thermopolis Rinaldi. This would be a great moment for you to fade in the real movie, by the way. (laughs) Princess of Genovia. So this morning when I woke up, I was Mia Thermopolis. But now, I choose to be forevermore Amelia Mionette Thermopolis Rinaldi, princess Genovia. I had a closing thought, but it's got to end with that. That's just, pretty that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> thank you, Gary Marshall. Thank, thank you, you, Julie Andrews and yes. Hathaway. <laughs> and thank you both for coming. Kevin and Tony, just three dudes talking about their love of Princess Diaries. Right on. I thank enjoyed this podcast. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Darling, it's 2 You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Tony Bravo and Kevin Fagan. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.